I'm Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime. In this episode of the podcast, where I try to explore a full-spectrum spirituality, in this episode, I'll be sharing with you a Dharma talk I gave recently, where I explore the sense of me, not me personally, not Josh, but just the sense of being an entity of me, and explore that in relationship to a very famous teaching or a very famous utterance from the Buddha. That utterance is in Pali, Sabe Dhamma Nalam Abhinivesaya. Sabe Dhamma Nalam Abhinivesaya. That Pali pronunciation may not be the best, but Sabe stands for all. Dhamma, things. Nalam, should not. Abhinivesaya, be clung to. So all things should not be clung to. And as the great Thai teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa put it, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. And that's the heart of what this talk looks into. What is that, what are those statements, what does that statement mean? What are the individual terms of the statement? What does nothing mean? What does I, what does clinging mean? So I, t- I really try to unpack that statement and look at it in context and, and to present or contextualize that statement like a signpost on a map. Um, or a, sort of an image of a sign on a map that is pointing out something very significant um, about the terrain of the map or the terrain that the map is trying to point to. So um, I really hope you enjoy this talk. And um, to complement the talk, I just want to point out that in the show notes and also in the Practicing Yin newsletter, each week on Sundays, we'll be giving out a free practice etude. This is a 10-minute or a 15-minute practice about meditation, yin yoga, qigong, a theme related to any of those, those practices. But we'll give out a 10, 15-minute practice etude for free. And you can check out that etude in the link in the show notes. And if you like it, we just want to say, um, consider joining our sangha, our weekly uh, offering of four classes of meditation, qigong, yin yoga and um, you can join our our community practicing live with us in those live classes over zoom or you can avail yourself of our really expanding library which includes tutorials our weekly classes going back a few years now as well as some workshops so there's a lot of material there for both students and teachers i should say that we're sort of a teacher's collective in the yin yoga sphere so if you're a yin yoga teacher specifically and you're looking for some inspiration many of our members uh, take our classes they take our workshops they take our tutorials and they weave so many of our themes into their own teaching and they find that it's a it's a great treasure resource for their ongoing uh, teaching so if you like any of that, do consider joining the Riverbird Sangha. There's a free two-week trial uh, offer in the in the show notes. Um, we also give you a free copy of the What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga. So we look forward to practicing with you, and I hope that the reflections in today's talk really um, spark some insight, spark some exploration, spark a new way of looking at things or relating to things in your meditation. Um, and I look forward to hearing how that goes for you. So. As always, my email is josh at joshsummers.net. And without further ado, here's today's talk, The Me That Clings. So for our session today, 
uh, to continue on with uh, really a reflection that I've been trying to weave through the last several sessions. It's a, and it's a reflection around the, the really a teaching that emphasizes letting go or not clinging or non-grasping. And the reason I, I, I'm sort of spinning or circling around this teaching for several sessions is that that particular teaching, as uttered by the Buddha, was said by the Buddha to be a teaching that contains the entirety of his teaching. So this is what the Buddha has said himself, that this particular teaching, um, when understood in his context, in the context of his teachings, contains the entirety of the path. Um, and before I recite that teaching again, before I go into that line a little bit more today, I, um, I want to share something from a Thai teacher named Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who I think very nicely and, and, and clearly reminds the listener, i.e. you and me, but this, what Buddha Dasa's uh, reflection here reminds us is two essential orientations to practice. So how we orient ourselves, how we approach and, and begin to interpret what we're doing in practice. These orientations are really, really important. And the first one is a gentle reminder that every statement within the Buddhist canon, I would even put that more broadly into the yoga canon, because Buddhism is really just a large branch off the yoga tree. But every statement within these teachings, and particularly in Buddhism, is focused on the as he says, I want to get the word, the quenching. That's what's the word I was looking for. All teachings are focused on the quenching of dukkha, of suffering. And um, to really understand dukkha, to really understand suffering in this context, that requires some exposure to the teachings. What, are the, what, 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 do, what is that experience? What is that human experience being referenced? by these teachings in the context of the, their teachings. Um, but that's the heart of it. It's not about, um, you know, proving some metaphysical statement. Not, not, it's not about answering a philosophical question. The Dharma practice, yoga practice, is not about answering some philosophical question or uh, proving a philosophical statement or um, really having objective knowledge at all. It's about understanding the subjective, meaning first person, what it's like for you, but understanding the first person experience of what discontent, struggle, suffering is like, and then quenching it or extinguishing it. But the second uh, part of what Buddha Dasa is saying in his statement here is that the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, have a logic in them that one can see for oneself without having to believe others. 
And that was probably the part of Buddhism that appealed to me most just because I was so suspicious and skeptical and fearful of anything that showcased uh, obedience, blind obedience, subservience, just bowing down to an external authority or an external power, whether that's a higher power of a perceived God or a kind of a guru figure. But Buddhism, uh, and I would it really put Buddhism in, in the heart of yoga uh, practice, is really putting an emphasis on the logic that we can see for ourselves without having to believe someone else. So the path, if I can describe it like this, the path is, and and then the whole kind of structure of what we might call Buddhism, are a collection of maps of the path. They're maps that when we learn to read the map, learn to understand the symbols of the map, meaning the words and language that an ancient voice may have put onto the map. When we learn to read the map, the map takes us directly into our own experience. That's the territory or the terrain. Takes us into our direct experience. And within our direct experience, personally, as individuals, it's upon us to verify or refute the claims made by these mystics or teachers. And I just think that's, it's helpful to remember that, that this is just a profound, profoundly interesting way of trying to organize um, a teaching that brings about a transformation of understanding that that this is to be confirmed to be explored and confirmed by each of us alone so with that as the context that there's the two core principles of this path are that the aim the aspiration the the orientation the directionality of the path is towards the extinguishment or the quenching of suffering and that that experience is to be explored and understand and verified for oneself so you know a simplistic term and i'm just quickly just occurred to me but bernie clark uh, one of the great yin teachers, um, nicely, I think, speaks to the responsibility of the student in a yin yoga class when he says the student is the one flying the plane and the teacher is just ground control. You know, and and so that really you know, wake every my ears up. It's like, okay, if I'm flying the plane and the teacher's just ground control, that means I really have to take a certain kind of responsibility for what I'm doing. I have to, I have to be fully responsible for this. I can take what they're saying on the ground control 
and kind of uh, follow it or override it if I want, but I, I, I'm the one that's responsible. And so, I, in that spirit, I just want to suggest that the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha himself, uh, every other teacher before and after, any teacher you've ever had, is ground control. And off, they're offering feedback, data, uh, ways of understanding a map, locations, conditions, so that we can best fly the plane. We can best uh, engage with the path to realize and come to know for ourselves what does this mean? What is the, uh, the quenching of suffering? really imply so all that said come back to this core teaching sort of the most essential of essential teachings that i've been quoting from this passage where the buddha said or is alleged to have said nothing should be clung to as i i in square quotes scare quotes i or mine also in scare quotes Nothing should be clung to as I or mine. Now, when I first encountered that kind of a teaching, uh, admittedly, I had to do a lot of work intellectually to really understand what a simple terse statement like that means and so for a while and and i think this is an important part of our practice i had to it's like that statement was a signpost on a map nothing should be clung to as my or i or mine that statement was like a signpost or a, a, a sort of a, an indicator on a map but it, you know, if I if I was I reflected back, I didn't know what the Buddha meant by nothing. Like, not what does that nothing in that statement mean? In the context of his teachings and in the context of the the practice environment that he was teaching in, what did they mean by nothing back then? What do we mean by nothing now? And what do we mean by clinging? What nothing should be clung to? What is the what does the clinging refer to? And more directly, what does the sense of I or mine indicate? So what I'm trying to say is to put a teaching like that in context, it's helpful to know what the individual concepts of the teaching mean in context of the teaching itself. You know, if I take the word, like there's a simple example. If I say, just give you the word bark on its own, B-A-R-K. And I told you that bark is the outer layer of a tree. And then I said, another statement, the dog issued a bark dog gave a bark the dog barked 
But I just told you that, that bark refers to the outer layer of a tree. I know this is a sort of a simple example or a silly example, but you might be, if you were just learning English, you might be very confused. Like, why is the dog doing something with the outer layer of a tree? What's the connection between dog? We don't realize that the word can be used in multiple different ways. So yes, bark can be mean, can mean the outer layer of a tree. It can also mean the sound that a dog makes. So the context in which the word is being used changes the meaning that is being activated within the word. And I think this is an important reminder for how we approach uh, any teaching. Um, and this really the, it points to the, the struggle or the, 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 the difficulty in receiving teachings from a very long time ago and translating them and updating them and making them relevant to our modern experience. Because we're going to come into you know, a teaching like this, nothing should be clung to as I or mine, and we have an idea already about what I is, and we may not have a sense of what the word means um, or the context with which the word was defined when the Buddha uttered it himself. So, if I'm if we follow what I was trying to say around the path and the teachings of the path, really, it's it's where the teachings that I'm referring to. The teachings of the path are like a map of the path. Um, I just want to invite you to think of a time, maybe, when you were in nature or someplace foreign you've traveled somewhere and it doesn't need to be outside of your country it could just be a, a place within your own country that you're not familiar with but just reflect for a moment if you've ever been in a situation where you're in a place that you don't feel like you know very well and you lost your map that you had or you lost your gps wasn't working And how disorienting and how bewildered, like confused and, and kind of uh, dis discombobulated you might feel when you lose bearings like that. I recently had this experience myself. There's a, uh, a state park about 15 minutes from our house. And um, there's, I don't know how many miles of trail networks within this park on a, on a fairly low elevation mountain called Bradbury Mountain. And I've never really learned the terrain of this park with a map because the maps are kind of very randomly placed in the park and it's hard to read them. So particularly since I live nearby and Terry and I go there so frequently and she knows the, the landscape better than I do. I've sort of followed along with her for a while and um, and got to know some routes in the park. I've got to know some circuits or routes. And last week, I went there by myself, and I decided to go the opposite direction from the loop I was familiar with. So it's the same terrain, but I'm just going the opposite direction, facing the other way. And Normally, this walk would take me about an hour to an hour and a half. 
And about an hour into the, this particular walk going the opposite direction, I realized suddenly I had no idea where I was. Nothing looked familiar. And then I thought, well, at least there are these sort of helpful, and I think sort of, sort of helpful maps posted within the park, various places. So then I would, whenever I'd see one, it was like seeing a, an oasis in a desert. It's like, oh, there's a map. There's a hope that I'll be able to figure out where I am. And I'd get to it and I'd study it for five minutes and I'd try to piece it together where I was in relationship to the map. And then I'd walk more thinking I was going in the right direction only to realize a half hour later, I was still lost and still in the someplace I didn't know where I was. And so this is an example where I'm in the terrain. I'm, you, can, you can't argue that I'm not in the terrain. I'm definitely experiencing the terrain of the park. But I'm lost because I don't have a clear sense of how to read the map or how the terrain relates to the map or how the map relates to the terrain. So that's all to say that in some sense, our discussions, our conversations, and our talk, the talks I give here are my attempt to help uh, facilitate a conversation about the map so that everybody is as empowered as they can be to take the map and walk the path themselves. And, and that really, um, the shift there between talking about a map and what the map signifies and then walking or entering into the terrain that the map is referencing the shift there is, I think, a shift between what I'm going to generally call right now interpretive science, where we can talk about interpretations of the symbols, the concepts, the ideas. We can interpret through conversation, whether it's verbal or through internal process of reasoning, a conversation with yourself. We can refine how we interpret and understand what's on the map. But to understand experientially the map, or we have to understand experientially what the map is indicating and signifying, we all need to run the contemplative experiment, meaning uh, the contemplative science of following certain injunctions or instructions that gear us or orient us to look into our own experience in a particular way to encounter the terrain that the map is pointing to. So I want to, I, I'm not alone in doing this, but there is a science to yoga. There is a science to this process of inquiry. Because in a sense, we're we're looking to understand spiritual knowledge. And spiritual knowledge is a particular kind of knowledge that is revealed or understood 
through direct individual first person inquiry, the exploration into what is it like to be you? I'm calling it a, a science in that there's, it follows the, uh, the basic formula. This process of the yoga exploration follows the basic formula of all scientific inquiry, which is basically a hypothesis is formed. And then from the hypothesis, like in this case, there's a, there's a freedom outside of experience. There's a freedom independent of all conditions. That's the hypothesis. Then the instructions, the, the, the experiment we have to run is to look at ourselves, look at our way of relating to our experience, relate, look at the nature of feeling burdened, trapped, pinned, caught, to look at what that's like and to explore it deeply enough that alternatives, alternative ways of relating start to emerge. So there's, we, we run the experiment. That's our meditation. <clears throat> that's our inquiry. That's our yoga practice. We're running the experiment of looking within. And then like any scientist, when we run the experiment, we get data. We receive uh, the results of running the experiment. What do we experience? What do we encounter? And then from the data, we talk about it with people who are also running the experiment. And we compare notes. And in comparing notes, we essentially continue to refine our interpretation of the map. But nothing on the map, nothing expressed in words, can ever really capture or encapsulate the first person feeling and experience of what you encountered in the train was like. If I go back to like being lost in the woods, I was just referring, you know, I told you I was lost, but nothing I say can really capture the, the, the tone of irritation and frustration I had in my heart and like, like worry that I wasn't going to get back before dinner. And it was already three hours in and my feet were wet and I was getting scratched by thorns and bushwhacking at places. You know, I can't, I can say those words. But still, we're just talking about the tip of the iceberg of the actual experience. So it's not to say that a map and discussion is important. I'm saying I'm trying to say it's very important to have a clear framework for a map and to try to endlessly fill, fill in what is included in that map. But yoga and Buddhism as a part of yoga. Um, is really a science of your own, where you're the scientist, you're the subject, and you're the knowledge that comes from the experiment. 
so there was a phrase that I shared in the um, in the newsletter yesterday that went out yesterday, and I think it's a it was a phrase that I stumbled across over the weekend. I was going through some old pr- journals of mine, as I do from time to time, and back in um, it must have been in like 2002. Back in 2002, the late yoga scholar Georg Fjörstein, who's a German yoga scholar who based in the United States after when I met him, um, he's sort of written the encyclopedic volumes of the yoga tradition. And in that workshop, I'd written out many pages of notes, but one note captured my mind and, and seemed very relevant to this discussion of nothing should be clung to as I or mine. And he said, the sense that I can go beyond where I am is the place from which to start your practice. And I just want to riff on this for a few moments and then we'll go into meditation together based on this this reflection. So again, he's saying the sense that I, quote I, there's a the me, the sense that I can go beyond where I am right now is the place from which to start your practice. And so if I put that in that teaching in context with the reflections from last week, even the guided etude on meditation without grasping. One of the things I'm encouraging everybody to really look at with as much freshness as you can every single time it occurs is the moment of coming to or the moment of waking up in your meditation practice. And and I don't mean just in your meditation, but as a practice, that's where we do it. But I would say, keep doing that when you take a nap, when you take, when you go wake up in the morning. But the moment of waking up, the moment of coming to, coming out of a stream of thought, out of a fantasy, out of a daydream, and knowing that you're present again, that moment when you're awake is where we can get that sense. We can get a sense of me trying to go beyond where I am right now. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, like the practice of yoga, the practice of meditation begins with the sense of I trying to go beyond where I am right now. For me, that like that stops me dead in my tracks. I feel something arrest. I feel something stop when I hear that, when I contemplate that. That stopping, the way I interpret it, is when I explore the sense of an eye trying to get beyond right now, something in me stops grasping. When I look for me, the, when I look for the me that is grasping to get beyond this moment, 
something stops grasping. And in that cessation, in the stopping of grasping, awareness receives things that are coming and going. It is open to the whole field of perception. And that might last, as I tried to say in the newsletter, that experience of non-grasping might last for a nanosecond, maybe a second or two, maybe, but unlikely, 10 seconds. And then something else occurs, namely another uninvited experience. And I'm saying, meaning it could, it could be a sound, it could be a sensation somewhere else, or it could be a stream of thought, but an uninvited, unanticipated occurrence happens. And with no volitional intention, meaning with no intention to go along with it, I come to again, seeing that my mind has been absconded. My attention has been, you know, abducted is the word I was looking for. Taken away. Taken, swept away by the sound, the sensation, the thought stream. And and it is uncomfortable to see that. And, And there's different ways different language we could use to describe that experience of our sense of presence being abducted by something there's different ways we could describe it and someone like like a carl jung might say a force in the unconscious erupted through the conscious mind and 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 overpowered our attention and jung very uh, through his his own research felt that what we are aware of consciously what we're aware of consciously represents a tiny fragment of what's actually going on that the unconscious below our conscious mind is a massively chaotic and powerful realm that our conscious mind has very little insight into. But in seeing our minds get abducted, to use, and I'm, I'm just using that phrase lightly, but to see our minds get swept away without our intention for that to happen that really does undermine a a narrative that the i is in control of things you see that long you start to realize the sense of self that you think you have that's in control of your own attention and the contents of your own attention is really not what we tend to operate as it's not the way we think it is. So over and over and over again, 
your mind gets swept away. And there's a moment of coming to in which it will feel like we can re-establish a sense of sanity or control by virtue of being present. Like I can't control what I'm present to, but I can feel, and it is a feeling, that I can at least be, even though I can't control what's happening, I can at least be aware of what is happening. Until the ability to be aware is stripped and we're gone again. So where does this take us? If we start to see that over and over, we can't control our experience, we can't control our attention, we can't control what arises in our experience the way we imagine we are able to. If the terrain of our experience is suddenly starting to give us information that shows that the map, the normal operating map we use of being an I in control of experience, it isn't so. So the question is, where where do we have any, do, like, what is the degree to control that we do have? And I open, I offer that as a question. I don't have an answer necessarily. When we look into our experience and we look in our own minds and the movement of our mind, where does it feel like we have control? When we exercise control, what does that feel like? When we are frustrated by feeling like we don't have any control, what does that feel like? And when, when we don't cling to trying to have control, or we don't cling to trying to exert control over a situation we're frustrated by, When we let go of clinging, when we let go of grasping, what emerges? So when we practice now, my prompt for the practice is that every moment you come to and every moment you sense that there's an I that can go beyond where I am right now. This, this is what I want you to focus, like home in on this. The sense that there's something, like when you come to in the meditation, and there's a sense of, I'm trying to do something to go beyond what is right now. I want you to feel that impulse, to feel that energy of this something in the sense of self you have trying to go beyond. Feel it and let it be. So this is sort of, if I may, if I may just sum, sum it up here, this is a 
added instruction. It's an, it's an added layer of nuance to the practice we were doing last week, which was essentially when you realize you're waking up, relax. Uh, sorry, relax your body and mind. When you realize you've been abducted or swept away, rela- uh, re- recognize that and release it, meaning release um, any tightness, any physical tension, any um, trying to change what's happening. Just let that re- loosen, relax. And, and let your awareness, as I was saying last week, fill back into receiving the whole perceptual field. Like your op- awareness will be open as, and as wide as possible. The added layer I want to stitch in this week is at the moment of waking up, ask yourself, what is the sense of I that feels like it can go beyond where I am right now. And that's a question that, again, to not use it as a mantra, and maybe in the next 30 or 25 minutes, you only use the question once or twice. It's not how many times you use it, or there's not a correct number of times you need to repeat it. It's not a mantra like that. It's more when conditions are right in your meditative practice and you're, you've woken up, you've come to, and the curiosity, the interest is there. Inquire into what is the sense of I that can go beyond where I am right now? Just ask that, what is it, you know, there might be a story, oh, I have to do this, I have to get more concentrated, I have to get rid of these irritations in my mind, I have to be better rested, I should have had more coffee, I you know, need to get a longer walk in today. You know, there are all these things that might mushroom up as activities, actions, that the sense of self will chirp about of what it needs to do to get beyond where it is right now. And I just want it's, it, to, it's that energy of becoming, try, like the clinging to become something else that I want to highlight as, as a reflective emphasis today. And if you're needing this, that, this kind of reflection is embedded very much in the heart of the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha defined. Suffering is arising due to three kinds of clinging. One cl- kind of clinging is the clinging to become. The clinging to become something beyond what you are already. So this, this reflection and this meditation are my attempts to um, point something out on the map to to try to describe the sense of self that's on the map that clings to an energy of becoming 
an energy of trying to get beyond where it is. And the inquiry I have is, what is it like when that energy is really experienced? Not sidestepped, but really like allowed to, to be there if it's there. And when it is there, when it's known, to, to explore what it's like to just let that energy be. This is the sense of self trying to get beyond where it is right now. And when I acknowledge that, what of the terrain opens up? What of the inner experience changes or develops as a result of that inquiry? Okay, I hope some of those reflections are helpful to you, and I um, hope they inspire your practice or give you some new avenues into exploring the dynamics of your meditation and spiritual practice. And just quickly before you go, if you'd like ongoing support in your practice, if you'd like to join a community of online practitioners, particularly focusing on the arts of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, do check us out in the Riverbird Sangha. There's a link for you in the show notes. You can learn more at joshsummers.net. You can sign up for our newsletter, get our free bi-weekly newsletter, Practicing Yin, which includes the practice etude that's also in the show notes, where this week I break down just Shavasana. So we hope these things, we hope these tools and offerings are, are valuable to your practice, um, and we look forward to practicing with you. And until we see you in the next episode, stay safe, stay strong keep practicing and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.